The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We've been working our way through Matthew chapter 3. This is now the fourth sermon. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 this morning. Just to quickly review where we've been so you can kind of understand the flow of today's message. Uh, The first week we looked at... uh, We looked at verses 1 to 6, and we saw that baptism is an act of confession. It's uh, an act of cleansing from your sins uh, that follows a change of mind as a result of of an understanding, an intellectual understanding of what you've done wrong and the need to get right with God. And it is accompanied with confession. So this is an ongoing characteristic of the recipient's life. In order to begin the process of being a Christian... In order to go from being a non-Christian to a Christian, in order to go from being someone who does not follow Jesus to someone who does follow Jesus, we see here that first there has to be an intellectual, some sort of an understanding within your mind of what's going on. Following that, there's a change of mind and a change of your will. You make a choice, a decision to completely change your course of life. Rather than going your own way, doing your own thing, you're going to make the commitment to follow Jesus, to do whatever it is that Jesus wants you to do. The third thing is confession, publicly acknowledging that change, and then that follow, following that, you get involved in baptism. That's what we saw Garrett doing this morning. All of those things. He was doing all of those things this morning, beginning a new way of life. Then the next couple of verses we looked at, verses 7 through 10, last week, we saw that baptism is an act of fleeing the wrath of God. It's, a, it's an act of stepping out for, away from his judgment and into his mercy and his forgiveness. And it's the initial step of what should be a lifetime of ongoing repentance. J- John the Baptist makes a statement to the, to, the, to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This week we're going to look at baptism when it's done by Jesus. When Jesus is the one who baptizes you. And what the difference is between Jesus' baptism and John's baptism. And we're going to find that a true lifestyle of baptism, because it's not just a one-time event. It does happen one time at the beginning of your walk with Christ, but it should be characteristic of an ongoing lifestyle, an ongoing Christian walk, which we can describe as a, a lifestyle of baptism. And we're going to see what that means today. So let's pick it up. We're going to read the whole chapter. Matthew chapter 3, we'll go start to finish. Then we will pray and we'll get to work. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, even now. 
the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I will baptize you, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we just pray you'd open our hearts and our minds today to see from your scripture, from your word, exactly what it means to be a follower of you. Lord, help us to see that we have moved from one place to another. And we've moved from one way of living into another. And God, I just pray that you would help us to live that way, the way that we have been baptized. Would you drive that home into our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord? We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our grizzled and chiseled church planter extraordinaire finds himself once again in the city of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is on his third church planting journey, is on his third missionary expedition, and he had before on his second journey left behind a couple of friends, Priscilla and Aquila, in the city of Ephesus. He'd returned to Antioch, spent some time in some R&R, a little time away from the battle line, so to speak, but now after having been rested and refreshed, it's time to get going again. It's time to get out and start proclaiming the gospel once again. And so he makes the long, arduous journey through the inland country to the city of Ephesus, where he hopes to find his buddies, Priscilla and Aquila. Upon entering the city of Ephesus, he looks around. He's looking high and low. He's trying to find his friends. He doesn't quite find them, but he stumbles upon a group of about 12 men. And as he's conversing and dialoguing with these individuals, it becomes apparent that they are, in some sense, devout followers of God. And as he begins to converse a little bit more with them, as he begins to dialogue a little bit more with them, it becomes obvious to him that even though they say they are worshipers of God, there is something fundamentally missing from their religion. There is something fundamentally missing from their faith. And so he asks them the question. He says, um, when you were baptized... Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Paul, as he's conversing and dialoguing with them, he notices there's a certain lack of passion, a certain lack of zeal. There's just that element that's missing from their walk, the fruit of the Spirit. So he says, hey, when you guys did this whole thing with the baptism and the water and all of that, did the Holy Spirit come upon you? And the 12 guys are standing there and they kind of look around at each other and kind of have that deer in the caught in the headlights look and Eventually, one guy says, well, um, we didn't even know there was a spirit or a, or a Holy Spirit, whatchamacallit thing. Well, what is this thing? What are you talking about? And so Paul begins to explain, and you can almost just hear one of the men stand up and say, okay, now wait a second. Wait a second. 
I assume at some point you're going to insist that we get rebaptized. I assume that at some point you're going to say that the way we were baptized before into John's baptism wasn't good enough. So what's the difference, Paul? What's the difference between the way John baptized and now this new way that you're wanting us to baptize? What's the difference between what we've already done and why is it so important and why do you insist that we get re-baptized a second time into this new thing? Now that is the pivotal question. And so, as Paul explains, I'm sure he probably referenced back to this event right here because there is a difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism. And so you look right here. Now remember, the context is this. John is in the wilderness. He's been doing this thing now out in the, in the Jordan River. And all of Judea and all of Jordan has been coming out to him and getting baptized. And last week we met these two, these two groups of individuals, which really, even though they're radically different types of individuals, on polar opposite ends of the spectrum, philosophically, politically, religiously, and even in terms of how well people like them. I mean, you got a popular group of guys and you got a not-so-popular group of guys. These are polar opposite guys. They come out to John. He sees them, doesn't matter which end of the spectrum they're on, they have the same fundamental issue, and he says, okay, if you guys want to get baptized, you better bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And now he picks it up here. Why is it so important to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Why is that so critical? And he says here, look at verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. I do this a certain way. But, notice the adversative there. This is a contrast. I do it one way, but there's a guy who's going to come who's going to do it a different way. And notice the difference here. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now right off the bat, you're like, okay, so... What are you really saying there? Like, what's going on? And, and the truth is, if you're just reading this in the English translation, if you're just reading this in the ESV, and, and I think English translations are great. I, I, my personal preference is the ESV. I think it's one of the more accurate. NAS is also really, really good. I would commend either translation to you as really, really accurate. But there's something you have to remember whenever people translate Bibles. You see, a guy who's going to go through the expense and the labor and the time to translate from the Greek and the Hebrew a Bible translation, he's going to want to sell it. I mean, it is, at the end of the day, a business proposition. You're wanting to make money. And so even with really, really faithful, really, really good translations like the NAS and the ESV, there are certain political considerations that come into play. And as I'm sure many of you are aware, baptism is widely disputed. The way it should be done, what it means, what its significance is, it's widely disputed all across a lot of different denominations and a lot of different uh, segments of Christianity. And so if your goal as a publisher, a translator, is to sell Bibles to as many individuals as possible, baptism is going to be one of those little hot-button issues that you're going to want to, you know, try to make it as vague and ambiguous as possible. And you see that here in Matthew chapter 3. He makes a statement, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. We'll start in the first segment. I baptize you, notice this, with water for repentance. Well, what does that really mean? With water, for repentance. What does for repentance mean? I mean, what, what is he really saying there? There are two prepositions, and I think this is, could be way better translated than what you currently read here in the ESV. The first one is the Greek preposition en. I baptize you in water. The second Greek preposition, ice, into repentance. Better way to render this verse would be, I baptize you in water, into repentance. 
Okay? Repentance is the direct object of the sentence. The baptizing in water is the verbal kind of element there. Let me illustrate. If I say to you, I go in car. Aside from laughing at me because I'm talking like, you know, a kindergartner or a grade one student, you know, see spot run, run spot run, you know, like it's a basic sentence. Like, okay, what is he really saying there, right? Like what, what's going on there? Is when I say I go in car, I could mean one of two things. I could be saying I go in the car, in the car modifies how I go to some other destination. In other words, the car becomes an instrument that carries me somewhere. If I say to you, I go in car to superstore. Okay, now you know what I'm getting at. The car is the vehicle that transports me somewhere. I'm not going into the car. If I say to you, I am homeless. I lost my house last, not, last week. I go in car. Then I might be saying to you, I live in my car. Like when I go in my car, that's it. I just go there and then that's the end of the journey. I stop in my car. In car as a phrase, is modifying. It's either the recipient of the action or it's modifying the action and something else is the recipient of the action. What, John, what Matthew is saying here about John the Baptist, John the Baptist's phrase is, baptism is the vehicle that is carrying you towards repentance. Repentance is the destination. Baptism is a step along the way. Now, if you were to read this, I baptize you with water for repentance, you don't necessarily grab all of that. It's, it's kind of vague. It's kind of ambiguous. What he is saying is, I am using water. What I am using is just water. Just like what we saw this morning. Garrett comes up here. He gets dunked under the water. That's a vehicle. It, there's nothing special about the water. It's not like holy water. We didn't stand up here and bless it and you know, offer up prayers over it. There's nothing significant about it. What's significant is the heart change that is going into the action. For example, if I want to go buy groceries, my heart condition is, I need food. I need to go somewhere to get food. The car just is a tool that I use to get to where I'm going. Now what John is saying here to these guys, these Pharisees, is like, okay, all you scribes, all you Pharisees, you're all wanting to come to be baptized. That's great. What I am doing is just water. Just an outward act. But it is supposed to be for the purposes of an inner heart change. You should be repentant. You should be at a state of repentance when I baptize you. And this is just a vehicle that I am using, as we've seen from the previous verses in the previous weeks, to make an outward expression of an inner destination that you have already arrived at. You have already come to repentance, and as a result, I am now baptizing you. Okay, that's what he's saying here. Now, there's an adversity. He's saying, I use water, but, but. In other words, I do it a certain way, but now something's going to change. I use water. I use it for the sake of repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than me. He's greater than I am. He's more important than I am. The job that he's going to do, the baptism that he's going to perform is way, way, way more significant than what I'm doing and what I'm performing. He says, his sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now, Jesus makes a statement about John later in the gospel. He says, of all those men who've been born, basically everybody who's ever lived, 
He says, John the Baptist is the greatest. That's a profound statement. Of all the prophets that have ever walked, out of all the guys who've ever done God's will, I mean, we're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, King David, bar none, Moses, all of these guys. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest. John says, when I compare myself to Jesus, I'm not even good enough to take off his shoes. Now, that's a significant statement. You know, this last week I was just kind of pondering this verse, and I was meditating on it, and I, I thought to myself, you know, how many times in the Bible is John the Baptist mentioned? In, in the Gospels, and, and when he's alluded to in the Old Testament prophecies. Do you know how many times? Five times. Five times. Now, how many times is Jesus alluded to? Short answer, I stopped counting. <laughs> I don't know. That's way more than five times, okay? Lots and lots and lots of times. And John is talking to these guys. You have the San Sadducees and the Pharisees. These are the big shots. These are the big wigs. These are the important people. And they're coming out and they're looking to like get a little boost among their following. Look at us, we're spiritual. We're even getting baptized like everybody else from Jerusalem and Judea is, you know, we're 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 seeking God just like everyone else. And John's statement to them is like I'm nothing compared to Jesus. And so as I was going through the scriptures this last week looking at the different titles and the different descriptions given to Christ, I'm just going to give you a handful. I've picked one from every single book of the Bible. Every single book mentions him. I would go so far as to say every single chapter, most verses in some way allude to Jesus Christ. We sang a couple of great songs this morning about how he reigns and who he is and what he's all about. Just for those of you who may never have met Jesus or you don't know who he is, just a couple of references. For those who find themselves in helpless situations, who find themselves on the wrong side of the law, God's law, in a courtroom with no one to represent them. The scriptures say, he is our advocate. For those who are weak, the Bible says, he is almighty. For those who love history, for those who love a good story about humanity, the Bible says that he is the beginning and the end of history. The blessed and only ruler. For the gardeners among us, anybody in the house like to garden? Okay. Anybody in the house like to get out and weed out those flower beds and do that kind of work? Anybody? Okay. Cheryl, you guys, all right. For the gardeners among us, you know what the scripture says? It says Jesus is the lily of the field, the most beautiful flower out there. For the frightened and the worried soul who is anxious about tomorrow's trials, who doesn't know where the next paycheck is going to come from or who's going to look after him. He is our chief shepherd. He is our good shepherd. He is the one who is always with us, and he is with us until the end of time. For those who are lost and confused, he is our great shepherd. For those who are held captive, he is our deliverer. For those who have been deceived and tricked and duped, he is the faithful and true witness. There is no lie of his mouth. For the one who is broken in despair and lost the courage to face tomorrow. The Bible says that Jesus is our hope. He is the hope of glory. 
For those who seek mercy, he is the Lamb of God. For those who seek a fair and just ruler, he is Lord, Lord of all, Lord of glory, Lord of lords. For those who know the fright of the storm-tossed sea, he is the master and the captain of our vessel. For those who fear tyranny, he is mighty God. For those who long for the dawn, who grow weary of the dark, he is the bright morning star, the great light that rises in the east. For the timid, the unsteady, and the uncertain, he is the rock, he is the root of David, he is the son of David, he is the offspring of David, he is the son of God, he is our savior and our sustainer, he is the rock, the chief cornerstone. For those who are spiritually illiterate, who have never met him before, who don't know anything about him, who've never cracked the Bible, who have never searched the scriptures, I can just summarize it for you right now. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of everything that the Bible is saying. For those who do know the ancient prophecies, for those who are spiritually illiterate, for those who can quote the books of the Bible in the correct order, you know that he is the fulfillment of it all. For those who seek real wisdom and insight, he is wisdom, he is the true light, he is the truth itself, and he is the wisdom of God. For the wicked, he is the judge of the living and the dead, the one with eyes of fire and feet of bronze. For those who may wonder about what happened to him 2,000 years ago, he isn't dead, and he wasn't just a good man. He is king eternal, king of Israel, king of the Jews, king of kings, and the king of ages. This is Jesus. And John the Baptist, when he's talking to these guys, these religious spiritual leaders, these gurus of faith, they come out to him, they're looking to co-opt his movement to get his baptism so he can elevate their status in the eyes of their followers. John sees all of these guys coming out to him and he says, you think I'm something. And, John, and Jesus himself says John the Baptist is something. But John the Baptist's words are, I am nothing, nothing, nothing at all. I am nothing compared to Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't want to miss out on meeting him. And if you know him, but you don't seek to know him better, you need to seek to know him better. Look at what he does here. He says, Jesus is coming after me. I baptize you with water for repentance. But now look at the next phrase. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So I know what you're thinking. Okay, he's going to use water to move you into the destination of the Holy Spirit and fire. So no one says. See, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. Jesus just baptizes you. This time it's different. This time it would be like saying, I go, rather than saying, I go in car to store, I just go to Holy Spirit and fire. This time, the thing in which you are being baptized is also the ultimate and final destination. That's as far as you need to go. What he's saying here in the Bible is that when you are baptized into Jesus Christ, when you come up here and the guy says to you, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you submit to him as the king of your life? In that moment when you say, yes, I do, in that moment when you're plunged beneath the water, going beneath the water and coming up again, all of that is symbolic of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you get baptized, you're being identified with him. And the scriptures say in that moment, water is a tool, but what is really happening, what the unseen reality behind all of this up here, this is all just symbolic, what is going on behind all of that, the spiritual reality is simply this. You have left behind the old you. 
You, the old you has died, and you have now been transferred into a whole new place, the realm of the Holy Spirit, which is described as Holy Spirit and fire. Let me illustrate for you. Some of us, when we live the Christian life, what we think, how we walk is basically, okay, I'm a worshiper of Jesus, I love God, and now I know that someday I'm going to die, and I know that someday I'm going to meet Him. And so now, what I want to do is, I want to work really, really hard. I want to get rid of all of this stuff in my life because when I see him, I want to be good enough to be accepted by him. Now hear me carefully. A lot of us are living the Christian life that way. My going to heaven requires me to work really, really hard so that I can get into heaven. I made an initial decision and now I'm going to work really, really hard. Baptism was just the beginning, and now I've got a slave in labor. That's what many of us think. But that is not what this is saying. I'm from Texas. I grew up in ranching country. And um, we would do this thing on Friday nights because we were stupid. Cow tipping. That's what we would do. Now, if you've ever tipped a cow, how many of you have ever tipped a cow? Let me see a show of hands. Right. You've tipped a cow? Okay, you tried to tip a cow. Exactly. Exactly. This is the joke. You don't tip cows. They don't fall over. You go, you dry, I mean, we've tried everything. They're sleeping out in the pasture at night. You go up to them. You try to like hit them with your shoulder, and they just kind of sidestep and then look at you and go, like, what are you doing? We tried driving up to them softly in our, in our truck. Like we're just, We just kind of nudged up against them, and then when we were making contact, they're sitting there sleeping. Then we go and floor it and try to you know, make them fall over. That didn't work either. You can't tip a cow. People say, oh, you should go out to cow tipping on Friday night. The joke's on you when you actually try it. It's not possible. Now, we were out cow tipping one Friday night, late at night, because we're dumb high school students, and we actually think this sort of thing is possible. And uh, we're in some farmer's pasture, and we're going after the poor farmer's cows. Well, I guess we weren't the only students that had done this. This is our first time to visit this particular field, but the farmer was waiting. So we're, we go out there. We're, we, hike, we, we hike over the fence, and we're going out there to try this silly nonsense. And the farmer catches us. I mean, he, he's, he all, all of a sudden you see these lights click on. He's kind of sitting in his truck and a clearing of trees across the way. Lights click on. Oh, no, coppers, run! You know, and we take off running, right? And there's a fence there, and it was a full moon, so we could see it. So we come to the fence. You know, fence, it's a cow fence. It's about, you know, chest high for me. And I mean, I just grabbed that fence, and I just vaulted right on over, right? Now, my buddy had a flashlight that he had been carrying with him. Now, a copper, or the farmer, I should say, is driving full speed across this pasture in his truck. For my friend to get over that fence with the flashlight in his hand, because the way I did it was both hands on the top wire, swinging myself over. My friend had to throw that flashlight down, grab the, the, the wire, and swing himself over. He couldn't take the flashlight with him. There wasn't enough time. Farmer was coming. When we jumped the fence... We had to leave the flashlight behind. When you get baptized, that's kind of what's, being, what's going on here. You're jumping the fence from one pasture into another. 
You're going from one side over to another. The old you, the sinful you, the rebellious you, the you that said, I'm not going to follow Jesus, I'm not going to do what God wants in my life, that you is jumping the fence when you get baptized. You're jumping the fence. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're jumping the fence, and you're jumping over to the other side. Now, here's the difference. We all tend to make it over that fence with all kinds of baggage that we weren't intended to carry with us. We are all superhuman in the sense that we are spiritually crazy, in the sense that we are carrying stuff over into the other field that we should have left behind. But there is a difference here. Now, I want you to catch this. Don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. There is a difference between landing in that field and saying, I got to get rid of my baggage, versus standing there thinking, before I can jump into this field, I got to get rid of my baggage. There is a world of difference, church. Listen to me, beloved. There is a world of difference. Nobody here is disagreeing. You got to get rid of your baggage. But there is a fundamental difference in terms of how that baggage gets stripped out of your hands. The reason you all made it over into the other field, all of those of you who are baptized, all of those of you who have trusted in Jesus, the reason you made it over into that field with all that baggage in your heart is because the only one that can purge that from you is Jesus Christ. You all managed to make this amazing jump. At the end of the day, it was because Jesus picked you up and threw you through the Holy Spirit into the other field while you were carrying all of this stuff that you should have left behind. You're not standing on this side of the fence saying, oh, before I can get over there, I need to let go of all this stuff. Let's face it, you're not out cow tipping on a Friday night. Okay? You're with Jesus. And what Jesus has done as he has thrown you into the other field with all your baggage. The next phrase here in the passage, what he says here is he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now immediately, because he's going to go on, he's going to talk about judgment and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire and all this kind of stuff, right? Immediately you're thinking, well, the fire is reserved for unbelievers and I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is for me and the fire is for unbelievers. Again, this is a travesty of modern translations, okay? The Holy Spirit is coordinate with fire. The two go together. They're combined together as one idea. So what he is saying here is, you know, you can fool me, Sadducees. You can come to me and you can pretend like you're spiritual and you can pretend like you're holy and you can pretend like you really want God in your life. But there's a guy coming after me and all of this is just symbolic of what he's going to do when he comes after me. And what he's going to do is he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, which is holy which brings fire into your life. That's what the passage is saying. To have the Holy Spirit is to have fire in your life. All throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous references. There, there's, a, there's, a couple, there's about a half dozen references. Prophecies talking about Jesus, saying that there is a day coming in which I will take my people and I will refine them as a silversmith refines silver in the fire. I will put them into the fire and all of the impurities will be burned out. All of that sin will be burned out. All of that stuff will be taken out of their life. There's about a half dozen references to this. He says, I'll refine them like gold. I'll refine them like silver. So 
if you've been baptized in water, great. The truth is, you can fool me. I've been fooled before. It is really easy to trick Josh Claycamp. Call me naive, call me trusting, call me whatever. If you say to me, I want Jesus in my life, I want to do whatever it takes to get, to get him in my life or whatever, we'll go through this whole thing. And, I, and we'll walk it through. And I'll say, okay, your next step is you need to get baptized. The beginning of the Christian life is with baptism. Okay, let's do it. I can dunk you in this water, and I've done it before. And then afterwards, despite the outward, purely physical water, just H2O, nothing spiritual, nothing significant about it whatsoever, I have watched, I have watched as people walked away from God. Though Josh Claycamp's dunking in water was very nice and very wonderful, true repentance was missing. A true commitment to following Jesus was absent from their life. And as a result, even though I baptized in water, just like John the Baptist baptized in water, Jesus did not come into the mix, did not introduce his Holy Spirit into that person. And as a result, there was no fire in that person's life. He says, you can fool me. I just baptized with water. But... I baptize with water. Here's the difference. Jesus, who is way better than me, he's coming with the Holy Spirit, which is fire. It is fire. I want you to just put your finger right there for a second, and I want you to go with me to Isaiah chapter 28. I want you to look at Isaiah 28, pick up verse 18. There's this imagery here. You see it in Matthew. Flip your way over to Isaiah 28, 28, 18. He says, I baptize you with water. Okay, that's great. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he makes a statement. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor. He says, he's going to gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff, he's going to burn that up. Uh, have you ever seen threshing? Like, not what we do today. You know, you, you look out in the farm fields, these guys got these giant pieces of equipment, these combines, and they're like just mowing it down like a lawnmower, and they've got this little buggy behind them, and it's spitting all the grain. That's not what's going on here. Old school threshing, old school wheat farming. What basically happened was you went out, you cut all your fields, you cut all your wheat, you gathered it all up, you brought it to a hard place, a hard surface, a rock or a stone or something like that. You threw it all down on the stone, and then what you do is you get ox or you get a horse or something of this effect, and you get this horse and this ox, and you hook up this, what they call a threshing sledge to it. Threshing, threshing sledge is a thing you ride around on. It doesn't have wheels. It's, a, it's got like a corrugated kind of bottom. It's got like little ribs and things like that. And so basically, the horse would walk all over the wheat. Just walk it all over, and you're riding on this threshing sledge, and as the horse is hitting it with his hooves, it's you know, breaking it up and pounding it up, and then the wheat's going under the threshing sledge. Where the threshing sledge is basically rolling it, crushing it, just tearing all those little fibers all to pieces. See, the grain, the wheat, the thing that you actually want to make bread, is bound up in this stalk. The thing that grows up out of the ground. And that's no good. We want to get rid of that. We want to get rid of the stalk. We want to get rid of the, the leaves and all this kind of stuff. We want to get rid of it. And we just want the grain. We just want the kernel of grain. But it's so tightly wrapped up in all of this 
stuff that in order to do this, we got to break it, we got to crush it, we got to separate it. It's got to come out from the stock. So we're going to trample it. We're going to ride around on a threshing sledge. Some farmers get a cart with these heavy stone wheels and they would roll that on all over it. And then when it's all been just obliterated, I'm talking torn from limb to limb, just ligaments, muscle tissues, however you want to think of it, it's the body of the wheat being completely just shredded. Then, not done yet, take a pitchfork, they stab it, then they throw it in the air, and the wind catches it, and in theory, I've watched this done. It's a long, tedious process. In theory, the grain, because it's heavier, falls to the ground, and the wind catches the chaff, that is the stuff you don't want, and it blows it away. Now, I watched a YouTube video on this this last week, and actually what I saw happening was the farmer tossed it up in the air, and really it kind of separated a little bit, but mostly it all just kind of stayed together and, and drifted to the other side of the threshing floor. So he'd walk over there and throw it back the other way. And then he'd walk over here and he'd throw it back the other way. And so he's repeatedly just stabbing this thing over and over and over again. Same little bit. Now, it is coming out over time, but it gets tossed and thrown repeatedly after it has first been shredded and trampled and pulverized. Welcome to the Christian life. <laughs> Welcome to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You think I'm joking? Look here, Isaiah 28. Look with me. Isaiah 28. Pick it up in verse 18. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Now, Sheol is the old Hebrew term for hell. Basically, you've made a covenant, you've made an agreement, you've made a binding contract. With death, you have said, we are going to go to hell. We are just so hell-bent on doing our own thing. God says, your agreement, your covenant, your desire to go to hell, to do what is wrong, to hurt yourselves, guess what? I am going to break that agreement. I am going to completely and forever alter that contract. It will not stand. Don't think you're going to make it to hell. I will save you. Now you're going to see as we read through that there's a little bit of a process involved in this. He says it will not stand as often. It says uh, it will not stand when the overwhelming, now notice this, when the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. What's he talking about? I thought he was just going to save us and not let us die. And now he's talking about the scourge, the whip, and being beaten down. Like, what's he getting at here? As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. In other words, when you get up and when you go to bed and everything in between, you're going to be scourged, you're going to be beaten, it's going to come after you, you're going to be whipped, and it's an ongoing process. It will never end. Wow, sign me up. Look what he says here. It will be sheer terror to understand the message. So you're not going to feel warm and fuzzy after you grasp the gospel. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff. Now listen to me. Don't be critical. Don't be cynical. I know I'm making jokes up here. I'm making light of the whole thing. But if you look at this with criticism or skepticism, if you don't take it seriously, what you are doing as a piece of kernel is you are binding, as a piece of grain, you are binding yourself more tightly into the chaff. If you have any desire to be separated from the chaff, if you have any desire to be let loose of the old you, 
If you have any desire to be brought out and saved and gathered into Christ's barn, listen to what's about to be said. Listen to this. Now therefore do not scoff, verse 22, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Listen to me. This is what he's going to say. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention. Hear my speech. Four times he says it. Listen, 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 listen. Listen to this. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? In other words, he just lives to plow. That's all he wants to do all day long is plow, 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 plow. Does he continually open and harrow his ground? His only desire is just to rip the ground apart, just to rip the soil apart. That all he wants in his life? When he has leveled its surface, does he not then scatter dill, sow cumin, and put wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the hedge? Now look at this, verse 26. He is rightly instructed as God teaches him. I'm talking about Jesus here. Dill, now look at this, dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. These are different spices. Dill, properly harvesting dill, is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod, which is like a stick except thicker. So in other words, there are different methods for different, different grains, different harvests, different methods of threshing these things. It says, does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. Now look at this, verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. I don't know what kind of a harvest you are. And you may not know it. But here is what the scriptures are saying. When you follow after Jesus, he will beat you. He will thresh you. He will try to separate you from the chaff. He will try to take all of that stuff out of your life that is dragging you down. Whether he puts you in unpleasant circumstances, whether it's the day-to-day -day grind, the ongoing drudgery of your job, whether it's a family crisis, financial crisis, maybe you're diagnosed with cancer. Maybe it's just a loved one that turns against you. Maybe it's your best friend that says, you know what, I don't like you anymore. I don't know what it looks like. But if you follow Jesus, if you truly uphold him as the Lord of your life, if you want him in your life, this much I can promise you. If you truly commit to him, you jump that fence, find yourself in the other field with all kinds of baggage that you shouldn't be holding on to he will thresh that thing out of your hands you're going to want to hang on to it you're going to want to keep it but he will take it away because he loves you because he cares about you and because he wants you to be like his son Jesus Garrett came to me about three weeks ago in my office with Levi and he said I want to get baptized I asked him the question. I said, is there any way I could talk you out of this? No. I said, okay, now listen, I've been where you're about to go. It will be painful. It will be difficult. 
you will have to make tough choices. You will either honor the Lord or you will choose not to honor the Lord. You will have to make other choices to honor other things in your life. And those choices will be painful. Can I talk you out of this? He said, no. You cannot talk me out of this. I want to get baptized. Oh, the, the torment of spiritual growth. The agony of developing character. Have you ever seen a butterfly hatch from its chrysalis? Have you ever had the pleasure of observing this? It's actually quite phenomenal. A worm, dirty, disgusting worm, kind of crawls, you know, caterpillar, sorry, caterpillar, crawls across the ground and, and eats leaves and all this other kind of stuff. And there comes a moment of transformation where it goes from being a caterpillar to a totally different type of creature, from being something that crawls along the ground to something that flies in the sky. And in that moment of metamorphosis, when it's, it goes into a chrysalis, it goes into a cocoon, and as it's beginning to push its way out, you know, it's quite a struggle. It's just about everything that this little bug can do to get out of that thing. I mean, it's a rock-solid chrysalis. And the, the butterfly is fighting and pushing and pulling and just trying as hard as he can to get out of that. And here's the thing. If you reach in and you kind of help him and you pull him out... You will maim that butterfly for the rest of its life. It will not be able to fly. In the struggle, the butterfly is developing his wings. As he is pulling and pulling and pushing and scratching and clawing to get out of that thing, it is causing blood flow into, it is forcing blood into, his, into the veins in his wings. So as he is struggling to free himself from the chrysalis, he is becoming the beautiful butterfly that God intends him to be. When we talk about following Jesus, there absolutely is pain in the offering. There is difficulty in following him. And we are prone all the time to say, you know, is this really worth it? Is this really worth it? Some of us have probably even come up right to the edge of saying, no, it's not. If you've got Jesus in your life, you'll never fall away. If you've understood exactly what it is that he's trying to do in your life, you'll understand that there is a value and a purpose to your threshing, to your being driven over with a sledge. You say, I don't, I don't know, Josh. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see it. There was a guy named Peter who was also in a similar situation. Cocky, arrogant. Jesus is about to be crucified and he says, you know, like, Peter, you're going to fall away. And Peter's, no, no, it's not going to happen. I'm going to follow you. There is no difficulty. There is no challenge. There is no struggle in my life that would ever cause me to fall away, to deny you, to say, no way, Jose. And Jesus says, really? Yeah, I'm with you till the end. doesn't matter how hard it gets. Even if a slave girl were to ask me if I was a follower of you, a little, you know, significant little child, I would stand strong. I wouldn't freak out and cuss you or anything like that. Really? In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus makes the statement, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded 
to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. He says, I have prayed for you. And after you return, strengthen your brothers. The purpose for going through the sifting was that you could provide an encouragement for the rest of your family. Years later, he's come to the end of his life. He's come to the end of his ministry. And Peter makes this statement. He says, in 1 Peter, he's writing to a bunch of people who are going through some trials and some difficulties. They're being threshed. They're being sifted. They're being refined in the fire. And Peter makes a statement. He says to them, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, now look at this, more precious than gold that it perishes though it is tested by fire. The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Going through the struggles of life Though it hurts, the scriptures say, when you get through to the other side, there will be praise, there will be honor for you, and there will be glory for you when you make it through to the other side. This from the man who denied Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. They said about Peter, till the day he died, every time he heard a rooster crow, he would break down weeping because he knew how he failed his Lord. I don't know what struggle you're going through. I don't know what trial you're going through. But I can bet, I can just bet that it hurts. That you wish it would be over. If you've been baptized into Jesus, you need to know it has a purpose. And it is wildly succeeding and making you choose what you really value. Do you value Jesus? Or do you value the stuff in your hands, the baggage that you're carrying? And if you're going to keep following after Jesus, i got great news for you. You're going to find that stuff is just getting ripped out slowly but surely. You're going to find that he is saving you from yourself. That's an amazing promise. So what does this mean for us today? Two things. Pharisees and Sadducees. It doesn't matter which end of the political spectrum you find yourself on. Doesn't matter whether you're popular, unpopular, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, doesn't matter whether you, you believe in the Bible or you completely reject everything the Bible has to say. Get baptized. Repent. Make a decision not to go your own way anymore. Make a decision to follow through, to obey Jesus, and to do what he wants you to do. You cannot be a Christian if you do not get baptized. To be baptized the way Jesus commands you is the beginning of the Christian life. We know this from Matthew 28, 19, where it says, Therefore, go and make disciples. In other words, you make people who follow me. How does that happen? First, number one thing you do, baptize them, immerse them. First thing you do, dunk them under the water. As an act of confession, following their change of mind, following their change of heart. The first thing you do, as they now engage in a whole lifestyle of becoming my disciples, following me, the first thing you do, baptize them. This is not optional. This is not negotiable. We are Bridge Baptist Church. Obviously, we're not really hung up on this. This is something we believe in. But maybe you're here today and you're like, well, you know, I don't think that's really all that important. It is important. Absolutely. 
As Jesus Christ is ascending into the heavens, giving final directions to his disciples, the last thing he says, here are your marching orders. This is what you're going to do. Baptize. Baptize. It's an outward water act. It's no significance. It's symbolic. But there are spiritual realities unfolding behind it that absolutely must transpire. You must be baptized. So if you're Pharisees, Sadducees, doesn't matter. Be baptized, assuming you intend to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If that's your desire, if your desire is to repent and follow Jesus, the first thing you're going to want to do is to publicly acknowledge all of that in the exact same way that Garrett did this morning. No more my own way. Now I follow Christ. No more am I doing my own thing. And maybe I don't fully understand this whole water baptism thing. I don't understand what's so, so special. It doesn't matter. All you really need to know is that the one you claim to follow has told you to do it. And if he's going to be the Lord of your life, though it may seem silly and you're like, I don't, I don't know what's going on with this whole dunking thing. It doesn't really make sense to me. It doesn't matter. Is Jesus your king? Is he your Lord? Then you do it. It's not negotiable. But then there's another thing here. Baptism is the beginning of something that should go on forever. We all of us in this room, it's really easy. I'll get baptized. Yeah, no worries. I got no problems going up there, being dunked under the water. It only lasts maybe a half a second, and then I'm coming back up. Ooh, scary. I got to hold my breath for like, you know, a half a second. No sweat. Becoming a Christian is easy. Okay. I think we just saw from the passage, that's not technically the case. Yeah, you jumped the fence, but now you've, become, you've began a lifestyle of baptism. You just get dunked under the water once, but now you've entered into a place of threshing. Where every day of your life, you're going to have stuff stripped out of your hands. You're going to be brought into hard conflicts. You're going to be made to make choices between what you value and what you ought to value. Between what you hold on to and what you should be holding on to. Make the right choice. And the third thing is this. Don't cherish stuff you should be letting go of. Don't hold too tightly to anything in this world that does not follow Jesus. It's not going to last. Look at the last phrase here. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The end of all of this is that the job will be done. The harvest will be brought in and the stuff that is useless will be burned and gotten rid of. Notice the phrase there. He says he will clear his threshing floor. It's going to happen. He's not going to get halfway to the job and say, okay, well, we're only halfway here. This is good enough. I'll, I'll sit down and take a break. Jesus fully intends that every person on the face of this earth that has ever lived or will ever live after we're long in God will make a choice. They will either be grain, they will either be wheat, or they will be chaff. Every person will have to come to that moment of choice, that moment of decision. And anything here, anything on this earth that does not worship Jesus Christ will not survive. It's that simple. He is God, and He does command us to worship. The last thing I get out of this passage as I'm looking at this is Jesus is the enemy of false religion. All false religion. So where are you at? I'm talking to you directly, individually, one-on-one. -on -one. Where are you at in following Christ? Do you worship Him? Do you follow Him? In Acts, in Acts 19... 
Paul encounters a bunch of guys in Ephesus. He says, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you guys believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, what were you baptized into? What actually happened? We were baptized into John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they received the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues and prophesying. And if you jump down to Acts 19, 20, 19, it says, A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came out to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. They repented. They gave it up. They walked away. My hope and my prayer for you today is that you, in baptism, would let go of all of that stuff that you weren't meant to jump the fence with in the first place. Don't cling too tightly to the chaff, church. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would strip it out of our hands, that you would take it away from us, God, we pray, Lord, that we would have a positive attitude and we would rejoice in the middle of the threshing, knowing that you intend to accomplish a good work in our lives. Lord, we just ask you to have your way with us. God, we ask that you refine us and that you purify us. We invite you here, Lord. Do what you need to do. We welcome you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own, because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.